yeah, having my head shoved into the uh, steps of the Ulster Bank in Ranelagh, cold butt of a gun put into the back of your skull. That's a moment where you go, okay, yeah, I think this one's up. How does a high-flying academic become one of Ireland's most prolific bank robbers? What I would see is the most important part of this still lies open. I'm not here to hurt you. A brand new series from the award-winning team behind the Indo Daily. That November day, that's where it all, all begins. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Anne-Marie O'Dwyer chatting all things the psychiatry of cancer. I want to say that it's very common to be very distressed, to have a very prominent psychological response to cancer, that they are not alone, that lots of other people feel in that way and that it's important for them to have information. Information is power, but it has to be the right information. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. They were O'Driscoll, Morgan, extra man, it's Fitzgerald, oh Fitzgerald is coming back inside! Leicester have another! Darcy O'Driscoll through the legs, Rob Carney, out to Fitzgerald again, stamp and score! Hello and welcome to the Left Wing Independent.ie's rugby podcast. I'm Will Slattery, delighted to be joined as always via Zoom by Luke Fitzgerald. Luke, hello. Hi, Will. How you doing? Yeah, good. I'm looking forward to seeing how crystal clear you sound and that you've gotten a new bit of technology. Your entire budget blown on one piece of technology for you <laughs> just because you kept complaining about how you know you didn't have the, the audio quality of me. Well, I'm glad we had a little bit of budget remaining after your high salary demands after your stellar year last year. Um, <laughs> if only, if real, only. It was a real coming of age for you with air and everything like that. And the school's rugby, the face of school's rugby as well. So, and then a global pandemic um, comes along and destroys my career, you know, what perfect timing. Um, I'm only a lowly banker these days. <laughs> yeah, lowly um, banker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Everything's anyway all good? Yeah. Yeah, all good. A, a very interesting weekend of rugby that we'll get to now in just a moment. And uh, some interesting developments today as well with the Pro 14 news, some Monday Night Rugby coming our way. We'll talk about what that means. And I'm delighted to be joined on the line by INM's Chief Rugby Correspondent to give him his full illustrious title, Rory O'Connor. Rory, hello. Hey, Will. How's it going? Hey, Luke. Hey, guys. All right. Rod's even. <laughs> <laughs> Shaky well, star. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, we could edit that out. We won't, but we could. Um, Rory, we might start with, I suppose, before the game, the Lentis Sarsis match, you had your newsletter last Friday, The Collision with Rory O'Connor. I urge all rugby fans to subscribe. You can do that on the Indo website. And you kind of teed it up as another defeat for an Irish team against maybe this set of English players who, you know, feature prominently in the national team as well. Wouldn't bode well for Irish rugby. You know, now that we've gotten to the end of that and they have suffered another defeat, do you hold it in the same kind of pattern or you class it as the same sort of defeat that we've seen over the course of the last 18 months? Or do you think this is more of a standalone problem that Lancer suffered on the day or, or problems that, you know, aren't really in the same bracket as, as what kind of, uh, you know, fell them last, the last couple of times? Yeah, well, well, firstly, thanks for mentioning the one article where I didn't say that we're going to beat Saracens well and um, completely underestimate what Saracens would bring to the table. Um, and some of your tweets as well, Rory. Yeah, I, I know, I know. Well, like, I, I, I do think that Leinster, <laughs> at, their, at their best, should be able to beat a Saracens team who's lost like seven or eight players from last season, including Noam Farrell, but um, I'm sure we'll come on to that. Um, I would class it in the same... It's in the same vicinity as those defeats, but I don't think it was the same. 
Um, I do think some of the trends are quite worrying. I just think Ireland are spooked by Maratoji at the moment. If you're to drill it down to one one entity or one kind of one person, like Atoji just is this bogeyman for Irish rugby right now. He just lords it over those Irish forwards on a regular basis. And like you would love if he was Irish. Like he's such a good player. He's so dominant. He just is this character who like every game he plays in, apart from the World Cup final when he didn't he he, he couldn't really influence it, but he still played well that day. But he just is almost always the man in the match. I can't believe Michael Rhodes got that. Like it told you was sensational. And I think his his ability to bring the standards up around him, his capacity to lead and his ability to just get under the skins of his opponents just seems to be unnerving all of these Irish players. We know we're very good players, but as a whole, they're not they're, they're not combining well against English opposition. And I think it's less of an issue for Leinster. I don't think Leinster are that far off Saracens. I think they got it wrong on Saturday. But if they played again this Saturday, I'd give them a, a right good chance of winning the game. I think they've a lot to fix and they, they, it's all fixable. Um, whereas from an Irish point of view, I'd be far more worried because I think when you throw in the, the back row forwards that England can provide and you you bring in the kind of psychological elements of the fact that Ireland, Ireland have struggled against powerful teams and Leinster have struggled against powerful teams, I'm, I'm be quite worried about that trip to Twickenham in a couple of weeks. Um, so I think, like, I don't think it was the same as last year's final. I thought they fixed a lot of their contact work around the pitch, but they weren't accurate enough in contact. And, it, and they had a major problem with the scrum. And they kept making mistakes that led to scrum. So they kept giving Saracens in into the game. They let Saracens take the pace. Saracens had no bench. They wanted a slow game. They wanted their players to stay on the pitch for as long as possible. Unless they just couldn't rise above what they're being strangled. They just couldn't free themselves. And I think part of it was down to Saracens' pressure, but a lot of it was down to their own mistakes and their inability to to kind of impose their own stamp on it. We never really saw what Leicester's plan was in the first half because Saracens just controlled it from start to finish. So, like, I think it was worrying, but, I, you know, Leicester are not going to play Saracens for two years now. You know, like, Saracens are gone from the European equation. So Leicester kind of have, don't have to worry about it as much, but from an Ireland point of view, yeah, there is a worry there. So, like, there's a lot in it. Um, but, yeah, it's the cousin of those defeats, but I don't think it was the same. Yeah, Luke, and for you watching the game, you know, there was, there was a couple of things that, that I guess Saracens got on top of Leinster. You know, the kicking game in particular was one of them. Obviously, the scrum was another seven scrum penalties in the first half as well. Leinster's ill-discipline gave, you know, them a couple of really easy penalties in front of the posts where, you know, there's no crowd noise. So if the referee is giving clear instructions, there's no real excuse, I would have thought, to, to concede those ones. You know, the scrum or the mall, uh, you know, a real weapon for Leinster. Like the amount of mall try Sean Cronin has gotten over the last couple of seasons must be, you know, over you know, in the double digits, you know, out of all those things, like, you know, you put them all together and you wonder how Leinster even got close to, to coming back in this game. But like, for you, what, what, what jumped out the most? Um, well, I, look, I thought they made a huge amount of errors. Like, I think that probably the best place to start is probably the scrum. Uh, I don't think I've seen Leinster kind of overpowered that badly. And I really think it was an eight-man effort. I wish I knew, understood them more. Um, you know, it did look to me like on a few occasions, particularly when, when on Saracen's scrum, which you'd normally be trying to attack uh, as the defending scrum. Uh, I thought it looked like our guys came up very early and Saracen seemed to get like a second shove, you know, so they kind of held Leinster's squeeze. Leinster's back rowers looked like, oh, they kind of, they, they headed off and then Saracen's put the real weight, the real shove on Leinster. And I think, look, I, just, I don't know enough about it, but like it was very clear that they were definitely dominant in the area, like extremely dominant in the area for two top class teams. And it probably showed up the real loss of Tyke Furlong, um, you know, in, in in what was a very long day for Leinster's uh, Leinster's guys who have been 
outstanding for a very long period of time. Like I don't think there's any of us from in Europe that could have done that to Leinster. I really believe that. Um, so that was, you know, kudos to, to Saris and that, and I'm sure there's a few work-ons for Leinster there because I don't think they're that far behind them um, that they should have got shoved around like they did uh, in that area. Like Leinster's pack is outstanding there's, there's, and have been for a very long period of time. Uh, I thought there was a lot of silly errors. I thought that really was, you know, kind of compounded that issue with the scrum um, because basically you had to be perfect. You couldn't knock it on because every time you knocked it on, um, you know, they got a scrum. Every time they got a scrum within 60 metres of Leinster's posts, you know, Elliot Daly knocked it over. So it was an absolute nightmare scenario for them and it meant they had to be perfect. Um, and they weren't. And that was why they looked so outgunned in the first half. I think what was pleasing was that I thought, they came back into the game well, and for them to have made that even close. Now, I don't know whether that Saracen's taking their foot off the pedal. My sense of it is that it wasn't that. My sense of it is that actually Leinster had a few wins into the game. They started winning a few more collisions. They took a few more chances, but when they took the chances, they were accurate when they were playmaking in the forward pack. And that's something I think you have to do with the Saracens. Um, I think that's really important because if you don't play around with the ball in there, if you're not brave on the line, they just it, it's basically a physical battle between you and them. And I think they're pretty hard to dominate in that sense. So you have to move the big guys around. You have to keep them all focused by making sure that if one of them drops off on the line, that your guy, your first forward tips it on. I always talk about Munster doing it. The, the little tip on passes, the little bit of interplay, it's really important. New Zealand do it the best in the world. and I think it makes them, that's what makes them really hard to defend against. When Leinster started doing a bit of that, I felt like that's when they got their ins into the game. But they had to be very accurate. And I thought Saracens were excellent. And I thought the defence was, was superb. Do I think Leinster are a better team? I actually do think they're a better team than the team that was out there on the weekend. I think with Owen Farrell back, I think I'd probably give them the edge. Um, which is why I said I thought Leinster would win it in a tight one. Uh, how wrong I was. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, I was happy to see them at least make it respectable. Um, I didn't think they were helped by the referee on occasion. Um, you know, I thought the Saracens are right on the edge of that offside line um, all the time. I thought there was a few situations where I thought the yellow, there was definitely a yellow card in Johnny Sexton in the second half. Um, and there was a few other bits where I just felt like they were very much on the edge. It was a very cynical penalty in the second half after all those penalties in the first half in the 22 by Billy Vinopola. Um And I thought all those things just... You know, didn't help that didn't help Leinster get back into the game. They needed a dig out from somewhere. They needed a yellow card, I thought, to really get themselves back in the game. That never really transpired. And on reflection, I think uh, given all those things, um, Saracens were the better team, and they really dominated Leinster physically. Um, and uh, you know, all credit to them because I don't want to be a moaner about it. They were definitely the better team on the day. Yeah, and on the defensive effort. They're- Pack made 131 tackles. That's an average of 16 per player. And most of them went to full 80 or some of the key men in particular, like Vincent Cock went to full 80 playing tight. Rory, you going to come in? Yeah, there? just a few things. On, like, I think on the scrum, I thought we saw the, the, like, the, we know the beauty of Billy Vinopolo when it comes to his unbelievable carrying game and the fact that he can also be a foil and suck in defenders and pull player passes back. We also saw the beauty of Billy Vinopolo when he won a scrummage because Will Connors was picked to mark Billy Vinopolo. But he almost got in uh, Connors and Doris's head to the point where they weren't scrummaging. And I think that's why they weren't getting the eight-man shove. And you have two very inexperienced flankers there and playing their first. Uh, Connors is making his European debut and, and Doris has played all through the season, but he's normally number eight. So I think, like, I thought Keane Healy looked a little bit old on Saturday, but maybe he wasn't getting the support that he might have got off Reese Ruddock, who's, who, who brings that power to the blind side of the flank and has loads of experience scrummaging there. Um, 
maybe Josh has more, you know, has more minutes under his belt in that position and knows that, you know, in these big games, you need to get down and get, get keep your head up, but be down. So I think that's one big element. And I think they lost it twice because I don't know if it came across on TV, but Saracens were out on their feet midway through the second half. Leicester, I brought on Baird and Kelleher. They should have brought on Gibson Park earlier, in my opinion. But they upped the tempo. They started winning collisions. Like Saracens only made 10 dominant tackles and made about three times the amount of tackles as Leinster. So it wasn't as kind of obvious in contact that they were physically dominant. They weren't playing, like Leinster were finally playing on their own terms. They won that turnover when Kelleher rooked them out of it. They, they then, Hugo Keenan won a brilliant, who I thought was excellent all day, all day probably Leinster's best player, won an aerial ball. Um, Gibson Park kicks it in behind and Ringrose uh, chases Wigglesworth into touch and they get the throw on the edge of the 22 it's a five point game Saracens were in bits like they, they looked absolutely out on their feet and maybe this is just an inexperienced second row partnership after Devin Toner went off but they threw to two and they got mauled and they were going into touch and Saracens I'm not sure who got in it was probably Otoje but Saracens got in and turned the ball over and they got a scrum and they got a scrum penalty and that was the game there was 15 minutes left but that was the game I think if Leinster score there and you know, just showing what they can do off off the top ball in the same position, but they went for a conservative call and didn't back their skills and their and their pace and their, and their whatever like else Felipe Felipe Contepomi had in their locker. So they got beaten up in the first half and gave themselves a nineteen point head start, but they actually got back into a point where they win the game again and they lost it all over again. And um, and I think if they had scored at at that point, there's no way Saracens win the game. Like their their Saracens were gone. Can I add one thing to that though, Russ? Right, I'd be I'm always cautious with um, you know Saracens and these teams that get off the line like so aggressively, continuously, to to not get caught up in the actual collision winning because what's really important to these teams is actually where the tackle occurs. So it, it occurs on you know behind the gain line. So it doesn't actually have to be that dominant a tackle. You just have to tackle them because you're you're so far they're so far behind the gain line that it doesn't matter. The key part is that they're dead. I do get the point though. And I, and I do agree, but just on that point, yeah. I'm always cautious when I hear people saying that. I'm saying no. The idea is yes to get an impact, but really, what the idea is to just knock you back. Yeah. Once you knock you back, um, we're going forward. Go on, um, sorry. And when they were dominant, they were winning. Like they were almost picking the times to be dominant. You know, they were picking their moments to rush up and make the smash. And like I told you, did it brilliantly at times. And, and you know, like he won that that, that uh, intercept, which obviously wasn't a dominant tackle, but it was a dominant piece of defending. So I completely agree with you. But I do think. In that second half period, suddenly Ryan Baird was getting through gaps. I was, you know, I, I, Ryan was knocking Atoji out of his way, and suddenly they weren't they weren't getting off the line as quickly because they were on the back foot all of a sudden, and they just they had them where they wanted them, having been in such a hole. And I just think they through their own I don't know it was a lack of ambition, a lack of experience, but by going to the front and not being tight in the mall, which again like, like you know Ryan and Ryan and Baird, brilliant athletes, probably the second row partnership of the next decade. But they just need to tighten up on their basics. Maybe you don't get that when you're playing senior cup of Michaels and you're playing for UCD or whoever they, you know, or, or Trinity and, and Club Rugby and for Leinster Ray. And obviously Ryan should have it at this stage, but Baird is quite new. Um, you know, I think they need to learn that. I think Saracens pride themselves on that at this stage. And maybe while we have good athletes who are good ball carriers, maybe we need to a bit of a kind of an old school going back to basics when it comes to your tie five play. The only thing I would say in that one is that Kelleher had such a bad week last week yeah, with the throwing that I'd imagine that could have played a part in it as well. But I, I look, I, I think we're 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 back to the situation again where we're talking about moments for Leinster versus the the kind of when we take the entirety of the game. Uh, you know, I do feel like it was it was similar to last year. 
Uh, I would only add that I thought Leinster actually didn't did, did Leinster play poorly this time around in the first half, where I thought last year they weren't really even allowed to play. So I think we saw really what Leinster are about in that period in the second half. It's just a shame, you know, that they didn't they performed so poorly in the first. Yeah. So I'm disappointed for them. Yeah, like I mean, I'm disappointed it. for them. I'm, I, I, I know they did, no, but I'm disappointed for Leinster because I really feel like they were good on for for that for for a long period of time. I don't think the break has actually helped them very much either. Um, you know, they came back a little bit sluggish, and they've kind of showed glimpses rather than kind of uh, you know eighty minute performances since then. And I think that um, you know, had they got to maybe earlier last year, I think we might have got a better game out of it. But look, uh, again. Credit to Saracens, they were outstanding on the day. And Jesus, I mean, as you said, there were some guys there. I mean, I told you that was his first game back, and he was just incredible, you know. Um, and I thought as well, Marco Vunapola, you know, he doesn't, he kind of flies under the radar a little bit for me um, with uh, with Billy because Billy's such a specimen. But Jesus, I just thought his tackling, his work right around the pitch, he was just excellent. And himself and Atoje. All day were just a menace getting off the line, tackling people behind the line. Marco Vinopola looks permanently out in his feet as well, like Rory mentioned it earlier. That <laughs> he also like, looks about 70 years old. Yeah, like when he was called to come off, he he looked like he was about to collapse. But, but he was actually going, he didn't want it to be no, taken off, which to, I thought was like, incredible. His kind of breathing said otherwise. Uh, but um, one thing I want to get your opinion on, Luke, is, is the aerial battle was somewhere where Saracens really targeted. It was interesting when Steve Ferris was on last week. He said he really thought Saracens would do what maybe Munster did in that semi-final and kick the leather off the ball. And Richard Wigglesworth, I know he's, I think, retiring when they lose their next match or leaving Saracens, certainly. Like, what a performance of, of box kicking he put on. And it's funny, like, the Saracens back three had three carries between the three of them. I remember thinking Alex Lewington had a really good game and then looked at the, the stats. He didn't carry the ball once, but he still was very good in the air. And when you have someone like James Lowe and Jordan Lammer, two guys who will likely be featuring for Ireland in November, like, you know, what What does that say about their ability in the air as well? When a lot of change out of that throughout the course of the game. Yeah, look, I think there's a few technique things. I think Jordan still has, uh, I, I'd like to see him get that knee up and maybe a tighter basket. Um, but I actually thought he was he was reasonably good. I think Wigglesworth's an awkward one, and I'm sure they would have practiced for it, but the left-footed box kick is actually very awkward because uh, you're just used to right-footed guys always doing it, you know. Um, so that was, uh, you know, that would have been an awkward enough one for them, but I thought Wigglesworth was excellent, very accurate. It was it was depressing enough to watch. I, I will say, for, like, once Saracens, you know, get, get in front, it's an absolute nightmare to try and rein them back in because you've got to be perfect 60 metres. From any, any mistake... 60 meters there for your line with Eddie Daly there as well. You know, the whole thing was was just really difficult, uh, I, I thought. And they're an excellent, excellent team. So uh, Wigglesworth, I thought, you know, led from the front in that respect. He was very accurate all game, uh, along with most of his colleagues on the team. I just thought they, they made very few mistakes. Um, it was a disappointing kind of spectacle in that respect because I think they have the ability to be, um, you know, way more expansive than they were and could well have, you know, really put the game to bed if they had been a bit more expansive, I thought, because they had the dominance, but um, they, they picked and choose. They obviously had a tactic there. Um, uh, and obviously, Stephen Ferris said, you know, he, I was surprised that they were they were as negative, but possibly that was to do with maybe Owen Farrell being out. Um, you know, hard to know, but it, it, it certainly was a tactic, that was for sure. And Rory, one thing that you touched on, you know, earlier around the scrum was that while Leinster have phenomenal depth in most positions, Prop is one that, as Leo Cullen kind of pointed out before they played Munster, they, they're a little short in. Roman Salanoa went down to Munster, Jack Ainger went to Connacht. I know he was giving out about maybe some, some confusion over, over those moves, but where, and with, where it's left Leinster basically is like, you know, you have Tyke Furlong injured, 
You have Vaca Balade injured as well. Michael Bench, I didn't really feel like he would, you know, change the game too much. It left Andrew Porter in a very tough position, a converted loose head, who who doesn't still have that much top level experience at tight head. And then with Jack McGrath gone to Ulster, you know, obviously as well, it leaves Ed Byrne and Keane Healy as kind of the main two loose heads. So there, there isn't a whole pile of options or depth in that position, especially with Keane Healy, you know. You know, I think turning thirty three in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and I, I, I could, you know, you can already hear the the hells of derision. Like, you know, the uh, fans of other provinces be going crime your river. You know, like they've got, they've still got, you know, the, the top two pro- tight heads in Ireland in on their roster. They just one is injured at the moment, and you know they have better options in most positions than ever everyone else. But yeah, the the, the tight end position, like I don't think I'm not sure. Apart from Abeladze, I think he only came off about four times this season. I'm not sure either of. Salano or, or Angel would have been involved in the weekend, to be honest. I think Bent is probably still your number three, given the experience for a game of this, his experience for a game of this magnitude. But I think over the course of a season, that's where that comes in. And I think Salanoa has been earmarked as the one. And he told Leo Cullen he was staying, according to Leo Cullen. Uh, Jack Angel came in to Leo Cullen and said, I have an offer from Connacht. And Leo said, right, look, look, I, I, you know, we're going to go with Salanoa. You can go to Connacht. He went to Connacht and then suddenly Salano was, was signing for Munster with a lot of encouragement from the IRFU. So that's why Cullen's annoyed about that. But he does have Ty Furlong and, and Andrew Porter. And, and as long as those two are fit, he, you know, they're very good players. And Tom Clarkson is the 20s uh, tight head and, and by all accounts is an excellent player as well. Made his debut against Ulster. So I think long term, this season might be a little bit of a challenge given that, you know, Furlong and Porter will be away for a lot of those 14 fixtures were announced today. But, you know, I think long-term they're probably going to be okay. I think Loosehead, from an Irish point of view, is a bit of a worry because I think Porter's the natural successor to Keane Ailey on the Loosehead side, but they've tried, they've kind of put him on the tight head side and they don't have maybe the cover right now. Maybe Tom O'Toole up in Ulster can, can do that job. But, like, Porter has the power. He has the athletic ability. He's brilliant around the park. Um, and he's probably better. You know, even if he is playing Loosehead, he gets, you know, your energy levels are higher because, you know, tight head just burns you down a bit more. It's more energy zapping. Below Keane Ailey, who... As I say, I thought looked looked a little bit of his age on Saturday, and, and and I'd be a bit worried about that because he I don't think he's been at his best since he got injured in the warm ups uh, for the World Cup last year. I think he, he got injured in Twickenham and never really recovered at the World Cup. And you know he's been solid, but he's not the player he was in terms of open play and that sort of stuff. You're looking at like Jack McGrath hasn't been great since he's gone to Ulster. He hasn't really been great since the 2017 Lions tour. He's got a, a kind of an ongoing injury that that he's managing for the rest of his career basically, and I'm not sure if he's able to rise above that and be the player that he once was. Hopefully he will, but at the moment, we're not seeing it. Eric O'Sullivan is there, um, very good player, but you know hasn't been tested at that level. And Dave Coyne's been out injured for, for Munster. He's probably the next, you know, I'd probably start with Coyne if he's fit for Ireland at, at the moment. But I think, you know, Coyne's 31 maybe, I think, at the moment. So there's not, from a position where we had loads of loose head props, suddenly Ireland looks a little bit more bare there. So it's, it's a little bit of a concern. I think in an ideal world, they'd shift Porter back across. And I think, Looking at Saturday, maybe they, they need to get Porter back across in that because he's learning a position at the at the, the sharp end of the game. He's fine against nearly all opponents, but you put him up against um, someone of the quality of Vinopola, and that's that's a bit of a, a bit of a jump. So um, I think it will be a you know John Fogarty's the national scrum coach now. He's taken over from from Greg Feek. Uh, Brent Fanning did a very good piece on our website today that maybe the the national approach to scrummaging isn't there anymore. The Feek had a kind of a top down approach that everyone. Was playing off the same him sheet. Munster of Graham Rowntree now will have his own ideas. Leinster of Robin McBride who has his own ideas. You know, I wonder whether there's been a bit of what made Ireland so strong in that area in the last kind of decade since that Twickenham game in 2012, where everything went to pot with Tom Cork come on for Mike Ross, um, and uh, you know Ireland got its act together in a scrum. I wonder whether there's been a bit of divergence and maybe we're not as strong in that area as, as we were. Uh, maybe the ball's been dropped a little bit in that area. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting one to keep an eye on over the next couple of weeks, especially with that rematch in Twickenham looming in November. One of the positions of interest, Luke, I guess on a national level is scrum half. Obviously, Conor Murray's been the incumbent for a long time, but coming into a you know six, seven weeks of international rugby, there's no real standout candidate at, at nine. Or, you know, John Cooney obviously was the man who everyone thought would be starting, but he's had a difficult start since the restart. You know, Luke McGrath had a very tough outing against Saracens. Conor Murray's still carrying an injury, a tie injury. He might be back in time for the Six Nations rescheduled games. You know, is Jameson Gibson Park now the Form 9? You know, he's looked very sharp in the last couple of weeks. You know, it, it's an interesting it's sort of a dilemma in one way, but in the other way, I guess it gives Andy Farrell an opportunity maybe to, to try someone else in, in a starting jersey. I don't think we're there yet, to be honest with you. Like, I, I still feel like, um, you know, Connor has a huge amount to give there. And I think that um you know the issue for him is that you know he hasn't seen he seems to be and i've talked about this a few times kind of it's like he's trying to make there's too much pressure on him almost to be making decisions all the time and i think that's probably been the role with munster particularly with joey carvey being out he doesn't really offload those duties too much he just takes it on himself and under joe that was the job role as well uh, my sense for him is that he could do with simplifying things and just getting the ball out for for, for large periods of time um you know, and possibly looking to box a little more, a little less regularly. I just feel like, um, you know, to me, he just looks like he's he's nesting over the ball just a little bit too long, rather than just getting the thing out. Like it's on other people to be ready for the ball versus him. Once he's ready, that he's and he's there. I think, you know, once you're in that kind of mode and you just know the ball's coming, you know, you kind of get ready a bit quicker and you're a bit more prepared. And it's harder for the other team to get prepared off the back of that because they've less time. Um, sounds like a simplistic way, I think of looking at it but I just feel like looking at looking at him he could do with simplifying his game a little bit there and not overthinking it a bit um which is probably hard for him because it's a probably a job it's probably a switch of roles from the Munster team uh so I think that battle is still what is still uh you know there to be fought I was disappointed John wasn't selected for the um for that game uh for that Ulster game uh against Leinster I thought that was a mistake by Dan McFarland um, and I thought it was a mistake, just not not just on that front, but on the kicking front. Um, so I was surprised at that. I think it's good for the squad that he did it uh, in some respects. But John's been outstanding for him for a long period of time, and one bad half of rugby, I didn't think really justified pulling him off and not starting in the final. Uh, so I thought that was a mistake. And I think John has been playing brilliantly for a long period of time. I'd like to see him really now get a few games in a row and, and challenge Connor. Um, for, for that position alongside Luke McGrath, who has been has actually been brilliant so far. He had a few shaky passes on the weekend, uh, and I was disappointed for him. Uh, I thought a lot of that did come off huge pressure. Like, it's real pressure against Saracens for your halfbacks. I didn't think Johnny looked like, you know, the superstar that we know he is as well. Uh, he, I'm sure he'd admit that to you as well. There was a few errors in, you know, kind of in his game. And I really felt like that was off the back of the pressure that Saracens put on them. It was just really, really hard to make your decisions when you've half a second less, when the ball is messy, when a toe is pushing and shoving guys. There's, they just make it very, very difficult. So I wouldn't be too quick to judge Luke McGraw on that half rugby, even though he'll be disappointed point with some of those mistakes i think that battle is well and truly alive there we've three guys who i think are probably still ahead of jameson gibson park even though i thought he was good on the weekend and did provide some impetus and i think there's probably a few lessons that, that connor could take from watching him i know it sounds like a silly thing for say for to say about someone who's probably his understudy but jameson gibson park doesn't oversimplify it or doesn't overcomplicate it at times he just gets in there and gets the ball out very very quickly when it's on to pick and go he, back, he backs himself i think connor could maybe do a little bit more of that as well um, so yeah, look, I think that that's I, I don't think there's a huge amount to worry about off the back of 
the, the Saracens game. I think we probably knew Toulouse was going to be an ask, uh, you know, too big an ask for Ulster at the weekend. I think we were disappointed with some aspects of it, which I'm sure we'll cover. Um, but I think the halfback pairing, I think we're still in good in, in, in good nick there. I just feel like, uh, you know, Saracens were just such a difficult ask for any halfback to perform well in. Um, and it would have been outstanding if they had, but the, the odds are against you there. Do you know what I think could have a role to play in the Marmion had an absolute and it's like five weeks ago now, so it's, we've almost forgotten about it because Connacht had those two games and then went back into cold storage. But he came out of lockdown like like, like a new man. He was absolutely brilliant in that game against Ulster. Um, they didn't play him the second week because they played all their games, and you know he, he needs to prove he needs to back it up now when the, the season starts next week. But he was like he was really quality. He's got the experience. We kind of he was almost a forgotten man. Like you know, he's got something to prove after the World Cup as well. Um, I wonder if he's got a role to play because I think Cooney was a bit slow out of lockdown and, and he was better at the weekend, but he's still not a like I would have backed him completely before the Six Nations. And um, I think he's got a bit of work to do to close that gap. I think Connor is still in possession, but if if, if Marmion can back up what he did against Ulster in that in the Aviva on that first day out and put a run of form together, and Farrell's back in form, I think he. he you could see the kind of second coming of Karen Marmion. And it's funny, you know, how things work out, obviously, with the pandemic. I think, you know, he was lined up to go to Sarsen. So in a different world, you know, obviously the game would have taken place, you know, back in April. But in a different world, he could be over with Mark McCall playing in the championship, potentially. So it's funny how, how things can work out. If that goes ahead, Will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw the reports today that the championship, but you know, is in jeopardy as well. So Sarsen could be in cold storage for for years. Will. Basically the apocalypse. But go on, anyway. <laughs> Um, yeah, so maybe that Ulster game then, obviously, to finish the season with two uh, heavy defeats is disappointing. Obviously, they had a couple of chances at 8-0, you know, there was one really nice bit of play where there was a chip over the top and they recycled well, and I think Jordy Murphy threw a forward pass at the end of the move. Uh, overall, what was your read on that, Luke? Game itself. Uh, oh, jeez, I was really disappointed with some of our key guys. Can't say I was completely unsurprised with some of the defending. Um you know, I, I thought that like Toulouse are a very difficult proposition. They play, they play very loose, but they give you a huge opportunity if you can stay cohesive, if you can stay together, and if you're physical with them. Um, and I think Ulster would be really, really disappointed with that performance because, uh, as you say, they had a few moments that if they'd gone their way, that you know the game could have been a little bit tighter. Maybe that would have given them a lift. Um, but I don't know. I just think, I don't think Toulouse are, are as good as everyone says they are. Uh, and I think they were made to look very, very good on the weekend by Ulster. Um, so yeah, look, that was disappointing. And I think like, you know, there's a few key guys. I know Stockdale came in for a bit of a ribbing, but there's lots of his teammates who were, who, who could have helped him out a lot as well. Um, he still has massive technique issues for me, his footwork. He's always sitting back on his, on his feet. Um, and you know, panicking, um, you know, when, when there's guys at real pace, um, and footwork, he finds it really, really difficult. He's just not over his feet. He's not forward because you don't you don't expect him to actually tackle Kobe all the time because the step is so far, but it's so hard and so difficult to defend against. But you have to at least get some kind of contact on him where you push him back into your defense on the inside. Um, and he won't be tanking some of the other guys uh, who, who, on, on his inside. They would have known that all week, or if they didn't talk about it then they're brain dead because the guy is electric and he's a two-man job nearly all the time. But you have to, when he's stepping back in off his right foot, you have to at least get some kind of contact, which means your feet have to be over your body. And if you're coming forward, so you, you, he might still beat you, but he has to go very, very lateral. He was able to step and go at a 45-degree angle and just cut through. No one's going to catch him once he's gone. Um, so that, to me, w w was disappointing for, you know, what, like to my mind, I suppose that Stockdale just looks like a superstar to me. 
Um, and he just looks really shaky. Some bad decisions, some kind of lackadaisical stuff with his handling. Like for a guy that has to really step up for this Ulster team, he really didn't. And I was disappointed in that because he should be challenging now for 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 a starting lineup for the starting lineup. And I, and I feel like he's fallen behind a bit. And I don't think they will pick him. I think they'd be right to pick one of the monster guys ahead of him and James Lowe. So um, that to me was really disappointing. And he has also a huge potential for that fifth. Dean slot to, to to really have a big battle with, with Jordan Larmer over a long period of time over the next kind of 10 years and um, I don't know I just he just seems like he's in a bad place at the moment and I suppose the reason I'm picking him out is because I suppose he's the key guy up there and I know he came in for a bit of flack but I feel like there's way more in him and I feel like it's just a few small technique issues that if he gets them resolved particularly defensively uh, he should be he should be an absolute. He should be an Ireland great uh, at the end of his career. He should be finished his career like a Rob Carney or something like that. Um, and to my mind, he's going down a, a bad path at the moment that he needs to correct quickly. Um, and he needs to whether that's doing a bit of thinking about his game or consulting, you know, a, a Tommy Bow or 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 an Andrew Trimble or one of these guys up there, um, just for some tips on that or for some for some guidance on it or just to get his confidence back. Uh, he, he needs to do something to, to get himself out of a rut that I think he's got himself into. Um, because I feel like, you know, he kind of got blown up by all the tries he was getting. And as I always say, like, look, you know, a lot of those tries, you know, tries you should be getting as a winger uh, here and there, um, you know, if the team is playing well. But if the team's not playing well, you, you know, you're going to be playing with a team that might have more of the ball than you. So if you can't defend you become a really big problem because you're usually defending against the most dangerous guys on the pitch. So uh, he shouldn't be a big problem for any team he's on. He should be a big asset. And at the moment, um, that's not the case. So, uh, you know, disappointing game for them. And I hate to pick one guy out, but he really didn't help the, the cause on the weekend. Yeah, for Stockdale, I guess, since that 2018 breakout year, there's been moments where he's looked back to his best. And then the next week, unfortunately, there seems to be, you know, issues where he, you know, he maybe take two steps back. There's been some defensive problems. You know, obviously, Cheslin Colby, when you're low on confidence, is probably the worst player in the world rugby to be going up against. But but that notwithstanding, there's been other games as well. There was a you know against Edinburgh as well. There was a breakaway moment where he, he had a pretty weak attempt at a tackle, and there's been, been issues like that. You know where where do you see him now at the moment? Because we are going into that crucial international period, and Luke, as Luke said, there he wouldn't pick him if he was in the Ireland setup. Yeah, I think Luke summed it up really well there because I think you can be you can sound like you're being really you're really ragging on a guy, but I think it's because we know how good he can be, and because with the physical gifts that he has, the flair that he has. He's he's under he's very hard to defend against in a very different way to, to, to Colby. He's very very difficult to defend against it when he's going well, and we've seen moments of flashes of absolute brilliance from him over the years. And he got that great run, and maybe it came too easy for him. But you even hear him talking during lockdown about how he went back and watched every game he's ever played to try. Like that's he's already been through this process during lockdown. He went back and watched every minute of every game and what and, and broke down his own game and what he did right, and what he did wrong. And then he's come out and he's still making the same mistakes and. You know, he was the worst player in the pitch in that World Cup quarterfinal. He was probably the worst player in the pitch in Twickenham uh, when Ireland got hammered uh, recently. There's a bit of a trend there, and and, and it, like you don't want to be and you don't want to be too harsh on him because he's been Ireland's best player at times, or certainly he's been a very Ireland's most dangerous player at times in, uh, during a very good period. But you can't like you, maybe he needs a period out of the team to, to to go and work on it. Maybe he needs a Pro 14 campaign during the Six Nations or something like that to kind of give him the kick of the backside that he needs to fix those things in his game that can help him get back to where he wants to be and to, to fulfill the potential that's in there because he is probably the best outside back of his generation in Irish rugby. But if you gave him Andrew Conway's work rate, he'd be an exceptional player. 
but he doesn't seem to have that le- that level of work rate right now. And um, yeah, I I don't think I think he'll be in the squad obviously because Ireland don't have. It's not like we have back three world class back threes falling off trees at the moment. Um, but it's hard to see him being picked ahead of Conway or Earls. I think Hugo Keenan should be in the mix. I think he's a terrific player. He's not as flashy, but he does an awful lot right. Um, you know, Larmer may may switch to the to the wing if they don't like the the, the way he's playing the fullback, which you know he's been he's been a real worry. I, I guess one of the big conundrums, I think, like prop and back three are one of the big conundrums for Ireland right now. Um, and from Ulster's point of view, yeah, he's their marquee he's a marquee name. They need him being their best player, I and mean, he, he he just hasn't been. Um, they've been weird since lockdown. They never really got going. I know they they they, they got the twenty minutes against Edinburgh, the thirty minutes against Edinburgh, but they never really. I don't know what what you know what they got wrong in preseason or, or or what happened to them, but they just they didn't look as sharp as everyone else. And they, you know they've made progress this year. You know a, a final and a, and a quarter final, um, you know is a step on what they had before. And they're not the best squad out there. They like that's probably the level they're at. And they lost Coatsia for the for the quarter final. I think they 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 can't beat Toulouse without him. But so they like you know they're they're trending in the right direction. But they like. Yeah, you don't want to be too harsh to sound like you're coming down on Stockdale all the time, but it is a frustration because you know how good he can be, and that's that's really where it comes from. Yeah, I do feel like we, he's a bit a discussion point than most weeks when we talk about Ulster, but as has been mentioned there, he's such an influential and key man for them that he, it's natural that, I guess, his performance is going to be assessed when you're playing for your province. And just before we get uh, to the end, guys, obviously today the Pro 14 fixtures were announced. We don't have to wait long for the new season to start, which I guess is one good thing from an Irish perspective. And I think the headline uh, grabbing attention is that there's Monday Night Rugby for the first time. You know, we discussed midweek rugby earlier, you know, in the restart, you know, and I guess they've kind of taken that view with on a big international weekends where there's a lot of eyeballs and people are competing to watch games. Maybe it's best to move it out of those 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 windows. Like, Luke, what do you think of, of having a few games on a Monday night? Ah, look, I think it'll be good. Um, you know, my, the concern is that I suppose Sky have a great night on the on the Monday as well. Um, look, lads, I think we're good, but are we Carragher, Neville, and Keane? Not quite sure. Um, but uh, look, I, I do think that's. I think it's good to change it up. I think it's always like they're going to have to be, you know, kind of. I think creative over the next couple of years to try and keep the game uh, alive because there's going to be massive financial pressure uh, coming. And I think. Um, you know, it, it looks like there's probably going to have to be some kind of big bailout of sports just across the board. Um, rugby being no different. And I think, you know, particularly if there's private investors coming in, um, you know, there's, there's a return that's required there for, for making the investment. So I think they're going to have to try and change something. Or maybe they think the current model works. We'll have to wait and see. It sounds like they're trying to change something. So this might be one of those changes maybe uh, ahead of time. Um, so look, I think it's exciting. I think the players will enjoy that. Um, you know, I think the schedules are... You know the, the the people who manage these things they were are very very adept at doing so, and I think uh, the one thing the one concern I suppose I would have is that for players who are kind of on the peripheries of the international team, you're kind of twenty four, twenty fifth, twenty sixth man. Those kind of guys, you know, how do they fit into the teams now? Those guys used to go back and, and play, or sorry, the, the the guys just beyond that, sorry, because now they nearly take thirty on the game. But the guys who are outside the twenty four, twenty fifth man. They oftentimes take a bigger number, but sometimes they'll drop those people out if they feel like they need games. Um, you know, how does that work for, for those guys uh, for getting into the team the week after the game? Do you know what I mean? So normally these guys will play. If there's people who have, a, you know, you know, 25th, 36th to, to whatever, 32 of the squad, those guys usually go back and play on a Saturday and then they get to kind of re- reintroduce into the team on the same kind of level as the guys. So everyone starts training on the Monday. Most of these guys are now going to be playing on a, on a Monday night. 
how does that fit into them? Do they miss out in the rugby if they're in the rolling for the week after? That's the one challenge I do see for them is trying to manage that group of the players. Because um, you know, if they do, if someone does play badly and someone does play well on the Monday, well, then they have got a Monday to a Saturday turnaround, and they haven't even trained with the team that much as well. So that's the only challenge I see. But overall, I do like the idea. Yeah, I hope I explained that well. I think I nearly we got there in the end. end. Yeah. It was the, it was the kind of week after I'm more concerned about for the guys yeah. who are on the edge. Yeah, yeah. And Rod, from a media perspective, what do you make of it? Like, I, I, I'm I'm enthused by it. Obviously, I saw some people mentioning that like Monday night for fans is that ideal. It's not as easy as a Friday and a Saturday, granted, but I think the obviously there mightn't be fans at all, but like, you know, all things being equal if there were. Yeah. I, I still think that the people who would go at the weekend, a lot of them would be able to go on Monday, but like from a media perspective, what do you make? Depends on the team. I think like firstly, there's no fans at the moment. And we've seen I've quite enjoyed being able to turn on BT on a Wednesday night and, and find Stale against Bath or something like that and, and have live rugby during a week. I know it's not great for player welfare. But I quite like tuning into rugby during the week. I like sport that's on in unusual times because you know it, it 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 it's more you know you're watching more rugby. So what you know that's they're given they're given a kind of they're filling an appetite that's there. Um, I think it's creative. I think you know it's not it's obviously robbing someone else's idea. It's 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 been done in the US and the NFL for about you know thirty years. But um, that's not to say it's not a bad idea. And as long as they don't make anyone play Monday to Friday, um, I don't see a problem. With it. I see Luke's issue. I, I think Andy Farrell won't release players he thinks are going to be involved the following week. I think that's just going to be it. Like if you're if you're in the running, you're not playing on a Monday because you don't have time to get ready for the next week. But um, as a general rule, it spreads the games over the course of the weekend. It'll get more eyeballs. I think on a Monday when the crowds are back, Andy Munster will really struggle with Monday night games. And they rely on people traveling. You know, a lot of people come up from Cork for their bigger games. So. Um, maybe they play Monday night games in Cork. I don't know, you know, in Irish Independent Park. I'm not sure how they, they they'll work that. Like Dublin's fine, you know. You know, people like the Leicester fans will always be able to get to the RDS. Um, Connacht yeah, fans I think generally Kingspan as well. I think yeah, but... yeah. Connacht, Connacht will be largely around Galway. I think I know they will have provincial mm-hmm. fans and, and Kingspan as well. But sure, like everyone's working from home at the moment. Everything's like you know, we're not we're in a kind of very strange situation. So I don't think anything should be off the table. But like Luke's completely right when he says the game is an absolute like peril. Like this is. You know, like whether this works or not, it's not really going to have a material impact on whether the game is going to be there in two or three years' time. I think there's like a need for uh, far greater uh, investment from elsewhere for, for that. But like CBC own the Pro 14 now, maybe this is one of their their tips. Maybe this is the beginning of, or they don't own it, but they own a stake in it and, and they own the commercial rights for it. So maybe this is one of their their things. But we still don't know what the 14's team is. I mean, that's kind of like you know we got a list of fixtures today, but two of the teams won't be playing until after Christmas. One of them has has gone bankrupt and 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 hasn't been replaced yet. So it's a very uh, unusual situation. Like we we get Monday night games, but we don't know uh, who's going to replace the Southern Kings and what the South African presence is going to be like. And like it's understandable because they're trying to run a league that crosses like six or seven public health uh, jurisdictions. Um, teams are going to have to charter planes to go from A to B. It's going to cost an awful lot of money. It's it's a really unusual fairly dark situation for like some Mick Dawson and 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 um all the other CEOs out there so it's uh yeah I mean it's a good idea uh it, they need good ideas I think they need to get money into the game as much as they can I'm, I'm not sure this is going to generate a lot but I think it will generate eyeballs and that's good for broadcasters yeah and there was a kind of a, a hint in the statement earlier that there could be the sharks the lions the bulls the stormers potentially you know coming on mass if not after christmas then maybe for the following season so that'll be something to look out for and something that will add an element of competition which is probably missing at the moment just before we finish up guys might just get our predictions for the weekend two actually i know there's no irish involvement but two absolutely cracking games as well you've rossing saracens uh the early game on saturday from i think the arena and then extra toulouse from sandy park 
you know, there's a lot of ways it could go. Obviously, Assassin's Exeter final, given, you know, the kind of the good, the good versus evil battle that could generate will be pretty tasty. Uh, I think it'll be a Racing Exeter final, personally. Um, I, I thought Racing was very good against Claremont and, and beat them well in Claremont at the weekend. Uh, Luke, what, who do you think will be playing in the Champions Cup final? Um, I think Exeter. Um, and I think... I think Saracens. I think Exeter will be too tight, too cohesive. They'll do... They won't be kind of... Um, kind of bundled over by Toulouse. They're very, very fit. Uh, they play a nice brand of rugby. I think they're exactly what Toulouse don't need uh, and they can't bully them. Um, so I think Exeter for that reason and, and Toulouse generally don't travel that great either. Uh, and I think you could be right. I think I, I think Racing, yeah. I think they might, they might have just a little bit too much. And again, same thing. Hard to bully that Racing team. They're just huge men there. Um... And they've got some real athletes in the back line as well that are kind of hard to contain. And uh, look, if anyone can do it, it's Saracens. But uh, I just feel like no one Farrell again. Um, you know, that's he 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 that that has to cost them at some point. And I think that it could be one step too far um, to to take Racing out as well. Yeah, Rory, because I guess the way the game plan was set up against Leinster with, you know, Wiggles were taking a lot of ownership of the box box kicking and then them kind of happy to defend. Alex Good in the end didn't actually, you know, have to get on that much ball when he did. He obviously finished that try brilliantly. But if it's a bit more of a shootout at the weekend with Racing and their their back line, it might be a little more difficult for Saracens. Yeah, well, I'm loath to, to write them off completely because I did that last week and that didn't work out for me. So, <laughs> But I do think Racing have the quality. I'd be interested to see how Zebo copes with the high ball. You know, I mean, it could give himself, you know, it could be a very... Time. I know he's not playing like against the Ireland team. There. What? He's ex. He's excellent there, yeah, Rods, isn't like, he? I think. I mean, yeah, yeah. He's Ireland's best fullback, in my opinion. I mean, I know yeah. why we don't pick him, but it's still pretty frustrating that he that they can't find a way to get him in there. From my perspective, but um, I you know it's great. To see, you said there's no Irish involvement. There's like three to four teams do have an Irish connection, which is good, and at least we can. I think Rassing at the most, so we can we can kind of pin our hopes on Dunica. Dunica Ryan, Mike Prendergast, and Simon Zebo. But I, I think Racing have the pack to stand up. I don't think Saracens will be able to play that way at the, at the U Arena or wherever it's called now. Um, I think on that pitch, you can't you can't slow the game down to the same extent that they did at the Viva at the weekend. I don't think their scrum will be as dominant because Racing have unbelievable props. Have, have an eight-man scrum. You, you have to scrummage in the top 14. You can't get away with it. Um, so that, like they'll be fine in that, that department. And they have the backs to hurt them, and I'm just not sure Saracens can get up to the emotional pitch two weeks in a row. That's like they, they left a lot out there at the weekend, and a lot of them played for a long time. It's going to be very difficult. I mean, Rhodes getting off is, is good for them, but even still, they don't have anyone to bring in from outside really to to boost things. So, um, and I think you're right. I think Exeter just have the structure to beat Toulouse. I think they'll they'll be able to take Toulouse into a place they want to go, and they have the weapons outside as well, and and. You know, I thought Ian Mitten played really well at the weekend. It's great to see him going, going well. A guy who's very un- unheralded in Ireland, but has been an incredible servant to that club. Um, but they've got Hogg to kind of come in there and, and really rip things up when they need to. Like Northampton kind of gave them a, a good game, but never really looked like winning at the weekend. So um, I think we're looking at uh, Exeter uh, Racing final, which that that'd be very interesting as well. So um, yeah, no, I, I think yeah, I think Saracens. That was Saracens final almost on Saturday, and uh, I kind of. Find it difficult to see how they back that up. 
Yeah, well, even though there are no Irish teams involved this weekend, just two absolute cracking games of rugby uh, to look forward to. Luke, Rod, thanks so much for joining me. Cheers, guys. guys. That's all we have time for on the left wing this week. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another podcast reviewing all the weekend's action. And in the meantime, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or listen on independent.ie. So until next week, thank you for listening. And goodbye.